it feels like Hollywood is just now figuring out black people can be in thrillers and sci-fi and supernatural movies as well. I don't know if that's just my perception of things, but it seems like there's more of a willingness today to put us in those kind of roles and these thrillers in these horror movies that sort of thing is that the impression you get as well it's it's not only the impression i think it's now the reality because the audience has spoken you know the way they responded to to get out and uh, the way someone like jordan peele and ryan coogler and lena waif and ava duvernay how they are uh, new voices relatively new voices who are giving us pieces of work that are being embraced by a very wide audience. So imagine this being the list of characters that you've played as an actor. Muddy Waters, a Tuskegee Airman, Martin Luther King Jr., Man, David Oyelowo was Chadwick Bozemaning. I just made up a word before Chadwick Bozeman. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, this brother David Oyelowo is such an amazing actor. He's got a new movie that drops August 30th, where he will not be playing a black historical figure, but a detective who gets a shocking phone call from his recently murdered niece. Yeah, because black people, we out here in some supernatural shit in movies. That's how we doing. In 2019. But David joins me next to talk about that movie, Don't Let Go, his career, and his good friend, Oprah Winfrey. Oh, and did I mention he's a prince? No bullshit, he really is a prince. And Prince Oyelowo is coming up next. I always thought that when it came to the pronunciation of my name, that I had it kind of bad, uh, <laughs> David Oyelowo, um, well because, uh, you know, growing up and, you know, your name is Jamel, you'd be surprised that as simple as it looks, mm. that people really do fuck this name up a lot. Yeah. So I've heard Jimile, <laughs> Jamili, Jamil, like they just, some like three E's, three E's. I know. But... I feel like I just been complaining because your name struggle I know had to be real. Well, maybe it's the three because it's minus three O's. <laughs> that's right. That's what throws people off. So maybe that's what it is. So if you had like one less O, yeah, this would have been easier. Uh, you know what? If the O wasn't on the end, I think people would probably be okay with O yellow. Mm, but it's when but it's you like give the them the extra, extra O. o. It's like, oh, yellow, oh, yellow, yellow, and that's when it goes, oh, yellow, 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 you know, and people just keep going. Well, um, one of, uh, you know, since we're on the subject of your name, uh, one of the things that I found to be um, hilarious was that Brad Pitt taught everybody how to say your name. And we actually have that clip um, (laughs) because, look, if Brad Pitt is teaching people how to say your name, I think you're a pretty big deal. So here's Brad Pitt teaching people how to say David (laughs) Oyelowo's name. (laughs) In situations like this, I found it sometimes helps to sing it. So, if you will sing it with me now, repeat after me, okay? Oh, yell. Oh, yell. Oh, yell. So, if you will say it with me now, David Oyelowo. So what's the worst pronunciation of your name you've ever heard? The worst is is when I was living in the UK and uh, you would speak to someone, you, you'd call the bank or something, and they would think that it was an Irish name. So, you know, because you have O'Rourke, you have O'Malley, you oh, have like O'Connell. Oh, like apostrophe Yeah, yellow. exactly. <laughs> okay. So yeah. they, 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 they would assume I was Irish and then, but you, you'd hear them going, oh, Oh, hello. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. Oh, and you just go, no, no, I'm not Irish. Try more the Western part of Africa, Nigeria. Thank you. Which I'm sure um, they were super familiar with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. Which didn't help at all. But yeah, so I got some pretty funky pronunciations there. The other is when it sort of sounds like people are yodeling. So that, that's when you get the, oh, yeah. 
you know, what I prefer is when people literally just go, can I call you David? I just, yes, yes please, you can. for everyone's sake. Or, Thank you. Or maybe David O. I don't know. David O is, is good as well. That's acceptable as well. Yeah. Well, everybody should um, know your name because, uh, you know, you're a phenomenal actor. And um, I, I feel like it must have been your, your calling in life to play every historical figure <laughs> possible. Because when you, um, I mean, I've seen uh, more than a few of your movies, but just going down the list as I was preparing for this interview to make sure I kind of remembered them all. It's just like, okay, Tuskegee Airmen, Martin Luther King Jr. I was like, man, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. a lot of uh, pressure, right? It's a, it's a lot of pressure, but it's also been a beautiful privilege. You know, as someone from the UK, but also of Nigerian parentage, to move to this country and to really have a kind of an education in African-American history um, covering like 150 years, um, starting with a film like Lincoln set in 1865. And like you said, the Tuskegee Airmen in terms of Red Tails, that was the, the Second World War, the 40s, and then going into the Help, the 50s, and then... Uh, you know, the butler, which which covered the 50s through to, you know, Obama becoming president in 2008, and then Selma, which was the, the, the 60s. It's just been an incredible sort of contextualization for me, being a black person living in America, raising kids who consider themselves um, American, and uh, to, to have that kind of history lesson through my work. Well, um, I asked David DuVernay, a good friend of yours, um, yeah. I asked her this on, on the on the podcast she was on a little while ago about um, are there times where you wish that, you, and you've had a lot of roles, but are there times where you wish like, man, it'd be really awesome if somebody gave me a comedy? Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I actually did one called Gringo. Which I saw I, it on the plane. Right. Oh, yes, there you I, go. I've seen Gringo. Yeah. There you go. And And I really loved that that one because it is the kind of opportunity that doesn't necessarily come my way instantaneously and I think that's partly to do with perception that's to do with the work that I've done before but I'd love doing comedy when I can um, so so yeah you know but I also think the path to a long career as an actor is to keep the audience guessing is to keep yourself challenged is to not be able to be pinned down to one kind of genre or role so yeah com comedy is definitely one that I, I hope to revisit time and again and are there or is there a, a type of role that you haven't been offered yet? Maybe a, not necessarily a specific character, but just a type of role that you haven't been offered yet that you really hope that you get to play. You know, I've always loved action. You know, when I was at drama school, I was—I actually was the champion of the uh, stage combat drama school conference for two years running. Um, and th those are skills that you know I've—I've I've had the opportunity to use in the theatre more. I did a bunch of Shakespeare earlier in my career, um, but uh, less so in movies. So you know, one of the things that uh, I loved getting to do in in Don't Let Go. Um, is is the action element, you know, is, is more of that genre stuff. And so, uh, yeah, uh, a bit more of that would be would be great. Well, that, that was uh, going to be my segue into talking about Don't Let Go, um, where I believe, you know, I mean, it sounds like uh, not necessarily a pure action, but kind of a, a bit of, well, it's a drama, but yet at the same time, there's a supernatural element yeah. that's to it as well. Um, yeah. So... Talk about the experience of, of working on this movie and, and tell the listeners a little bit about what it's about. Yeah, I, I think I think a supernatural thriller is probably one there you of, go. One, See, one of the, you said what I wanted to say, but only smarter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I took your words and then I sort of put them put them together. Um, but yeah, I, I I would I would say it is a, is it is a, a supernatural thriller, and um, you know the thing that really drew me to it is at its core is this relationship between this uncle and his niece. Uh, my niece in the film, as played by the wonderful Storm Reed, um, and in the film basically you see this beautiful relationship between them and then a terrible thing happens you know my family is murdered my brother my niece and my my uh, sister-in-law and I'm in a process of grieving when I get this phone call out of the blue and it's from my niece 
and somehow time has split and she is calling me from two weeks before her own murder and I am somehow in the future and realize that I can reach back through time and try and save her from this um, terrible incident mm. um, so th that's the that's the the core of the story but what really drew me to it as a father myself you know I know I would do anything to uh, protect my children to save my children and so even though I love the genre elements, it has action, it has that thriller thing, it has that whodunit sort of detective element to it as well. But at its core, it's really kind of a unconventional familial love story. I really love uh, Storm Reid, um, who also was in, in Wrinkle in Time. Yeah. And she just, she just seems to have it uh, so together despite being so young. What mm. was the experience like working with her on this particular project? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you nailed it there. You know, when we did the film, she was only 14. She was on the tail end of being 14 at the time. Um, and what I was just so blown away by was her emotional intelligence. I just... You know, it's not any, a phrase you typically use with fourteen-year-olds. So I'm impressed. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. Because what was being demanded of her in the film was to go to places that your average fourteen-year-old should not even have to entertain, let alone have the ability to inhabit the way she did. And I remember meeting Storm for the first time. It was actually. Uh, on the set of A Wrinkle in Time, I went to visit both Ava and, and Oprah on the set, and there was this girl who was the center of the story and just completely inhabiting the role, her own space. She seemed completely free in her ability to play this role. And at that time, Don't Let Go was already in my life, and I thought, wow, that that is what we're looking for. I've, I always said we need someone the likes of Natalie Portman in The Professional. And I saw this girl and I thought, I think she could be the one. And then she came in and read with me and it was just, it was just a, a complete no-brainer. Mm. Um, it seems these days, I don't know, um, and it could be in the moment, everything seems like it just happened now. And uh, But it feels like Hollywood is just now figuring out Black people can be in thrillers and sci-fi and supernatural right. movies as well. I don't know if that's just my perception of things, but it seems like there's more of a willingness today to put us in those kind of roles, in these thrillers, in these horror movies, that sort of thing. Is that the impression you get as well? It's, it's not only the impression. I think it's now the reality because the audience has spoken, you know, the way they responded to, to Get Out and uh, the way someone like Jordan Peele and Ryan Coogler and Lena Waithe and Ava DuVernay, how they are uh, new voices, relatively new voices, who are giving us pieces of work that are being embraced by a very wide audience. Uh, you, you see that with A Wrinkle in Time as well. You know, that story wouldn't necessarily historically be told with Storm Reid at the center of that narrative. And I think what, what's happened is it's been unfortunate because for a long time, there's been this massive gap, certainly for my generation, between the amazing Denzel Washingtons, the Will Smith, the Jamie Foxes, and then this new wave that is now coming in, being afforded the opportunities to shine in a way whereby you cannot deny that the audience like to see these actors, you cannot deny that there are filmmakers who can carry these narratives, and you cannot deny that the audience is there to receive it. And it used to be historically for someone like me, to be perfectly frank, the only way you get your break is to play a historical figure that a white actor couldn't play. Um, you know, i.e. it's race specific. But in a world of Daniel Kaluuya, of Michael B. Jordan, of John Boyega, of a Storm Reid, uh, you know, there are now opportunities that mean that race is no longer the factor that means that they can go ahead and shine in any given narrative. Um, I do wonder, uh, just not just with, you know, uh, sci-fi and fantasy and, and, and those and those uh, particular genres, does it feel like for you and just for black actors in general, does this feel like a good time in Hollywood? It feels like a good time for sure, because um, I, as a producer, am someone who's now going out in the world and talking to people who historically, not only did they not 
seem to have an appetite for people of color and people, um, you know, women uh, particularly, which has always been a focus of mine when it comes to filmmakers particularly. But now they recognize that it is good business and they're going to be held to account by the audience. The audience pointed out when it is a cast that could be more diverse and isn't. They pointed out when there are people helming the film who really is should their perspective be the one we're seeing again it's not that anyone shouldn't be able to tell any story i just feel like culturally and certainly in my industry there is a real focus on course correction and having enough of that that then means that it can be an open field again whereby a white male perspective isn't the dominant one to the point whereby we have to feel the need to correct it. So I think we're still in a period of course correction and it's providing an incredible amount of opportunity as a result. I, I can't figure out, is it that Hollywood, I mean, they do, I totally agree with you. They definitely see that it's big business, which is really interesting to me because they act like black people just started going to movies two years ago, I know. like with Black Panther. It's yes, like we yes. were kind of going to movies before then. Um, but now there seems to be a certain intention there. But I also can't help but notice, like you mentioned, you're directing and producing now. Mm. I can't help but notice more of us are being change agents, as yeah. in Ava DuVernay having her own uh, company and her being her own brand. And obviously Oprah has as well. She's got her own network. Mm -hmm. It feels like the thing that shifted wasn't necessarily their perspective, but just more of us are in charge. And I think you need examples. You need uh, proof of concept. You need people who can inspire you. You know, I had a front seat to watching Ava being inspired by by Oprah. You know, I had a front seat to the fact that when we did Selma together, the offers were not pouring in for Ava in the way they should have done. And, um, you know, Oprah presented her with Queen Sugar. And that became the platform that Ava used to, to usher in this cadre of amazing female directors that has also been part of the change in Hollywood. So it's about advocacy and it's about who are those shining lights, who are those North Stars who are going to present to you what is possible. I know for me, Sidney Poitier signified that, Denzel Washington signified that, especially for a, a young kid of Nigerian descent born in the UK who didn't have have any real role models in the UK to model myself after, I had to look here for that. And that's partly why I now work and live here. So, you know, I truly believe that going forward, because we now have a new wave of black and brown talent who are doing well, but the difference this time, I think, is also we've now really recognized that not only do we need to hold the door open for those coming behind us, we need to blow those doors off and we need to have hubs, houses, places where that new talent can come, be nurtured and find expression as opposed to let me just go do my thing, let me buy into the there can only be one mentality. You know, your success is my success. And I do believe that that's a revelation that is now becoming more pervasive with us. Let's talk about that. There can only be one mentality because you being somebody who grew up in the UK and your experience in Hollywood and, and obviously now living in America. Um, John Boyega, he pointed this out. Um, and, and I'll just say up front, I have not watched the second season of She's Gotta Have It for mm -hmm. Spike Lee. Forgive me, Spike. Sorry, I watched the first season. Haven't gotten around to the second season. But there was some specific shots kind of taken at British actors, mm. black British actors. I should be even more specific about that. And and John Boyega clapped back at mm -hmm. Spike Lee for um, what he felt like was some unfair criticism. Do you experience or do you feel that there is tension between American-born black actors and British-born black actors? Because there's there's this conversation as if uh, if you're black and you're from the UK, that you're going to get a better opportunity than somebody who's black and, and from here. Is that a real thing or is this just some perception that people have of a problem that doesn't exist? I think it's a storm in a teacup. And it's a, it, and what I mean by that is it's, it's this argument that is counterproductive to us. And the reason it gains traction is because it feeds into one of the things that has kept us back as a community, as a people, and 
to be honest, it's been by design for a long time, divide and conquer. And when we buy into it, when we play into it, we are the only ones who lose through it. So, you know, what I know to be true is that that storm in a teacup in relation to the amazing things that are going on, it's almost not worth talking about. For me, it is not worth talking about, you know, because culturally, I... Um, you know, I love being African. I love having grown up in the UK and I've now lived here for 12 years. And I love, and I'm now literally legally an American. And I love that side of my life as well. For any actor who is worth their salt, when you take on a role, you go to the role. The role isn't supposed to come to you. You are supposed to be in service to that role. And if you achieve it to the point whereby the audience receive it, you have done your job. You know, anyone could could go after Forrest Whitaker for playing Idi Amin in The Last King of Scotland, which I was in, and I had a front row seat to seeing just how brilliant he was at playing that role. Should a Ugandan have played it over him? At the end of the day, when I watch that movie, his performance means I don't question it. When I see Meryl Streep playing Margaret Thatcher, should a British actress have played it? When I watch it, I just go, whoa, that is one of the greatest actresses ever. You know, and that to me is the litmus test. So I sidestep that conversation because I find it counterproductive. It it erodes and denigrates what it is we actually do, which is to be students of humanity wherever it is and to be portrayers of it to the degree that we can be truthful and excellent and transcendent and when i see an actor do that that's all i need to see um i mean to your point i had no i'm a huge fan of the wire i didn't i had no idea that idris elba was british i didn't i mean he was stringer bell and that was all i cared about i didn't care where he came from he played the hell out of that role exactly um can i ask you a really dumb question please okay i'm sure you love dumb questions (laughs) um so why is it that british actors are so much better at american accents than the other way around (laughs) why is it why is this because we grow up with it because we grew up with American movies. I said to you, you know. Yeah, Denzel. Denzel. Yeah. You know, I was watching him and Malcolm X, do, uh, you, you know, in Mo Better Blues. And, uh, you know, all of those amazing films. He got game, uh, like, when I was young. Uh, you don't have the equivalent. Because, to be perfectly frank, I didn't exist when, when a lo- you, you know, or, or the equivalent of me, you know. The Chiwetel Ejiofors, the Idris Elbas, the John Boyegas, you know, I, when I first came to this country like 12, 15 years ago is when I even started visiting um, LA in particular. I remember being at the airport and giving my address to where I was staying and this African-American lady at the desk was like, what, what, what are you talking like that for? I was like, oh, well, because I'm, because I'm from London. What? Stop it. I was like, see, no, even that, is, that was better than is... most Americans that I hear trying to do British accents. You do a black lady quite well. <laughs> but, you know, she just couldn't get her head around the fact that, that there were black people in London, you know. Um, and so that's the difference is that there hasn't been that that cultural exchange for you guys in the way we've had it. Maybe with time, you know, that that will that will change. But I grew up basically as with American culture as my second culture. Yeah, it it, uh, it only reinforces, especially as I've now been able to travel the world, that, and I mean this, no disrespect. So, you know, when somebody says no disrespect, They're about total to disrespect. disrespect <laughs> but you go other places, London, you know, across Europe, uh, South Africa, whatever, and you realize 
just how stupid we are here and how <laughs> as much as America has positioned itself in this country as being the foremost leaders at everything, mm-hmm. you go other places, you're like, damn, we real stupid. <laughs> and it may, and you're right. I mean, I grew yeah. up in Detroit. Right. I didn't know black people were in London. Right. I thought all the black people were in America and right. Africa. That yeah. was pretty much it. Yeah. And that's the kind of mentality that you grow up with yeah. here. And I've made this example before because uh uh, you know, th- some friends of mine over the years have expressed, you know, frustrations with how uh, other black people from different countries, you know, uh, view us or whatever. And I was like, well, we have the same, literally the same ignorant perceptions of them. We grow up right. with them. Right. Uh, I was in, I've told this story on the podcast before, but I'll, I'll tell it for you. But uh, I went to South Africa to cover the World Cup in 2010, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of my, Nelson Mandela's last real uh public appearance, if Mm. you will, before he died. And I had to laugh because I was in a mall in Johannesburg and one of the security guards, well, one, knew I was American right away. And I was like, damn, how did he know? Um, And I thought I was blending in. Guess not, (laughs) right? So uh, he asked me if I knew Whitney Houston and he was dead serious. And I was like, and I said, yes, of course I do. (laughs) I didn't know Whitney. I was like, fuck it, I'm going to roll with the fantasy. Yeah, she's a cousin of mine. We get along. Yes, we all know each other in America. All the black people know each other. Yeah, the equivalent. Exactly. So I can only imagine once you lived here full time, Mm -hmm. probably the level of... You know, ignorance that you face about people not understanding, especially with you being, you know, African living in the UK. They probably I'm going to guess that you probably experienced a lot of this. I've experienced a a lot of it and I don't blame anyone for it because at the end of the day, you know, someone's ignorance is not necessarily something of their own making. You know, it's exposure, it's education, it's socioeconomics, the ability to be able to travel. One of the great things for me is I've lived most of my life in the UK, seven years of my life in Nigeria, uh, 12 years of my life now here in America, which is why the conversation we were having just now about the discrepancy between uh, black British actors and African-American actors, why I can't give any energy to that, because I know what it's like to live as a black person on three continents. One, where I am the majority. Two, where I'm the minority. And I've seen the things that have kept us back. And the things that keep us back are partly ignorance, but also a lack of self-awareness, like who we actually are as black people on this planet. You know, I come from a royal family in Nigeria. Oh, I was going to ask you about that. Oh, oh, uh, <laughs> All right. But, uh, but it, you know, what that has afforded me is I know who I am. I know what I'm from. And I know that just because... Uh, my ancestors were stolen from that continent and then shipped and subjected to terrible things, uh, you know, both in Europe, in South America, in America itself, that there are ways, there are ways that we can um, claw back some of the awfulness that has been done to us. And I am absolutely determined to, in my own small way, be a part of that. And that's why I love this medium. That's why I made Queen of Cartway that we we talked about, about an 11-year-old chess genius from Uganda. That's why I made a film called A United Kingdom about an African prince who wants to be a great leader in his, in his own nation. It's to redress the balance of some of the ignorances we have about that continent and who we are as a people. So um, you brought up your your royal lineage. Right. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's definitely a, among a, a list of questions right. I have to ask you. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. I promise you, no coming to America jokes. I promise you. <laughs> we'll be. Back. I love that. Film. You can say what you like. <laughs> uh, we'll be back in a moment with David O. Yellowo. Practice it at home. <laughs> David, before I get to your royal lineage, um, which is fascinating, by the way, uh, you, you know, you've, as you said before the break, you've lived on, in three different, you know, continents. So what would you, for you, what is, 
what was your favorite place to be? Oh, wow. I mean, they all gave me different things, have given me different things. I, I couldn't say which is my favorite. I wouldn't change having lived on all three. Um, the UK, uh, you know, I don't know that I would have been an actor if I if I didn't live there. It has an incredible theatrical tradition. Um, I went to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts and and got to do sh Shakespeare, the Royal Shakespeare Company, and do the the kind of theatre that you can't really do anywhere else in the world. Partly because that kind of theatre was kind of born in that place. So so Great Britain gave me a huge amount in terms of the thing I love and part of my cultural identity, the, a language I love, which is the English language as well. Um, but then, uh, you know, going from being an, a minority in, in the UK to being part of a majority in Lagos, Nigeria, and... Uh, you know, being around people who look like me everywhere I, I I looked, being in a in a society, a community, a place, a country where every opportunity on offer was mine for the taking, really shaped my identity and took me away from what I guess one would call a minority mentality. And it stuck with me even when I moved back to the UK and then America. And then and then America, having lived here now, you know, two of my four children born here. Uh, America, I have lived the American dream in many ways. I, I, I left the UK, not because things weren't going well for me as an actor, but I, I, my ambitions sort of seemed to transcend what was going to be afforded me in the UK. And uh, I came here and was given opportunities I don't think I would be afforded anywhere else on earth. Um, and so, like I say, I, I, I am living the American dream. It's why my family and I are now citizens. We've chosen to, to build our life here. And the industry, you know, here, the entertainment industry has been incredibly good to me. So different places have given me different things, all of which equal to who I am, which is a, a person I'm, I'm, I feel very blessed to be. So how have you tried to make sure your children have that same connectivity uh, to not just, you know, Nigeria, but the, but the, the places that you've been, because they're growing up American. So this is a mm. totally different experience. So has, has it been challenging or, or how have you approached trying to give them uh, this identity that yeah. you developed for yourself? It's a great question. And it's a real challenge um, because America is so big and has so much to offer, even just here in LA, you know, we live in the Valley and within half an hour, you're by the beach within two hours, you can be skiing somewhere, you, you know, you can be in the mountains, you can be, you know, there are just so much right here. Um, but what we have done is consciously just really embrace travel. And thankfully, you know, uh, I have a job that is very dependent on travel, going to, to the the locations, the places that have the tax breaks, the you know, or the nature of the character of the story I'm telling. Always a you know, we've we've shot in Africa, in Europe, in you know, all Australia, all over the world, and we've consciously chosen to always travel as much as possible as a family to show them the world. Um, you know, for a time, my kids went to a French immersion school here in uh, LA in order to to. Just keep an outward-looking mentality, you know, to look beyond the shores of America, I just think is so crucial and, and key. So, because you don't want them growing up dumb like most of us do. So, good, <laughs> good parenting. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, just to expose, expose them to as much um, of who they are as possible, because they are equally European, you know, their mom is both Scottish and English, but they're Nigerian. My dad lives with us. Trust me, they never forget that they are Nigerian. Um, and uh, and they're growing up American, which is a culture I also love and is affording them a, a bunch of opportunities as well. At least based off what I read, it was your dad that first told you that you have royal lineage. Yeah. Um, and you didn't believe him. No, <laughs> no, no, because we lived in the UK and, you know, royalty in the UK is the queen. You know, it's Prince Charles. It's it's all of that. I know I don't come from that living on in, a, in an apartment in South London. Um, but, you know, my dad has the tribal marks on his cheek, uh, on his cheeks, four tribal marks. And he has the, the 
word bale written on his stomach. Um, and uh, basic bale means king in the, in the, in the Yoruba language. Um, and traditionally, you have that on your stomach so that if you die in battle, they know to give you a royal burial. But, you know, this was all lip service. I was like, yeah, whatever, uh, until I went back to, to uh, Nigeria and lived it and had my eyes open to this amazing, rich culture and history that, you know, I, I'm, I'm connected to. So what did you experience when you, you went back? Um, well, you know, th there is something truly profound about living in a culture where you are clearly a minority and then going somewhere where you are the majority and also where your family has a long history. You know, I think that that is, that's the big thing that, you know, we as black people in America uh, were robbed of, you know, is, is that deep, deep history tied to one place. And having grown up in the, the UK and then seeing that that was instantaneously mine for the embrace was just extraordinary you know that there is a place in nigeria that for th seemingly hundreds if not thousands of years my family have been from was just an amazing thing to encounter go to those places feel it feel it in my bones that that was not just a, a, an intellectual thing but a, a felt spiritual thing because you have a your family has streets named after yeah yeah them yeah in, in yeah. nigeria right yeah we have the first street we lived on was on oyelowo street on the on the family compound in lagos it was so surreal because also my dad had told me that the reason he had these travel marks is because he'd fought a tiger so you know that seemed way more plausible Wait, to me he told you he fought a tiger he told me he'd fought a tiger because you know i think i was getting bullied at school and i was I, so i went in and went look Listen, my dad fought a tiger. When he comes to pick me up, look at his cheeks. You can see the tribal marks. That's where the tiger clawed at him before he killed it. So don't mess. So that was far more uh, palatable for me as a story until I then arrived in Lagos, Nigeria, and seemingly every one of my uncles had also fought a tiger. Um, so, so <laughs> um, yeah, but that was um, that was quite something to 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 see that that you know the way my dad. Came carries himself, even though it was a very challenging life we had in the UK. My, my parents suffered very real racism, and that was partly why we had to go back. Things were just not going that well for my, for my parents in the, uh, in the early 80s. And then, but he always carried himself a certain way with a dignity and a pride and a self-assuredness that belied all of that stuff. And then to go to a country, go to a place where all of my family members had that same disposition was just such a wonderful thing to see. So are you a prince? I am a prince, yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Prince on yellow I, I see you. Yeah. You inherit something or um uh, well it's a it's a tricky one because if I if I wanted to to go I mean I was actually asked if I wanted to go back because um my family is the royal family of a place called Awe in or your state in the western part of Nigeria. But if I if I had to go back, there was a real schism that happened over the fact that my grandfather became a Christian. And so he no longer wanted to have multiple wives because he had his, you know, his uh, moral compass had changed, as it were. But there's a real appetite for that still. I don't think my wife is going to be down with me having eight wives. So I mean, let's let's be real. That's one of those things that sounds good in theory yeah. to some degree, but y'all barely can handle one. Listen. Okay, so... I am under no illusions. That is the kind of headache that I do not want to have to deal with. I'm very happy with my one. Thank you very much. Um. So big question is there some currency somewhere in Nigeria with your face on it? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll show myself out. The boy has got his own money. Okay. <laughs> I told you no coming to America jokes. I lied. <laughs> I totally lied. Oh you left yourself wide open. Man. That was a rib shot. I did. I did. I did. I, oh. I like the shot you took there. Um, uh, no, only streets. Only, only, street. only street names. And then see, you're so yeah. nice. You actually answered the question. <laughs> I assumed you didn't have your own currency. I'm glad you brought up your wife because I, I found it interesting as I was researching for this interview mm. that you and your wife have the two-week rule. Yes. Okay, so explain the two-week two rule. 
Well, the two-week rule was born out of we got married quite young. We were actually engaged at the ages of 19 and 21, and then we got married at 20 and 22. So it was actually quite a naive deal we struck with each other because we just saw that, you know, we're both young actors at the time, and we just saw so much divorce, to be perfectly frank, in in the entertainment industry. And we just thought, well, surely that's tied to, you know, that person's on that movie set, that person's doing that play, you know, you're spending so much time apart. And we just said, no, that's not going to be us. We are never going to be apart for more than two weeks. And you know, you go on to have an acting career and then you realize just how challenging um, that is. But because making a promise is something that is very, very high, um, you know, uh, with me when it comes to priority, um, we've managed to keep it. And only once did we go over by 11 hours, which was just a nightmare. She was doing a film where they changed the schedule and so she had to get the later flight, but we've never gone over it more than 11 hours. In fact, since that time, we've never even breached the 13 days. So, you know, it's meant some pretty crazy plane trips and one time I was shooting in South Africa. In fact, it was for Queen of Cartway. I was shooting in, in Uganda, South Africa, and she was here in, in LA with our kids. And we met in New York for 36 hours. And then I went back to South Africa. She was back to LA. But I do think that's what, you know, um, love is built on. It's not just about the butterflies. It's also about the work you put in. So that's the work we choose to put in. You said earlier that your dad is is living with you. Yes. Okay. How's that all going? <laughs> very well. You know, uh, it, it was born out of the fact that a couple of years ago, my mom became very ill and uh, we had to move her over here for the kind of uh, care she needed. She subsequently, unfortunately, passed away. Um, but it, it, the, the silver lining in that very real dark cloud is that my dad now lives with us. And my dad is like the hardest working guy you'll ever meet. And so for a lot of my youth, he was just working 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 but to to now have him be with us and to see him enjoying his grandchildren and I have more time with him now than I ever had growing up it's just been an amazing thing so I'm you know I'm, I'm just loving this phase of our lives now at least um from what I read and, and you can obviously tell me this is, if this is accurate or not he was not exactly on board with you becoming an actor no okay no. so how did you manage that yeah it was tricky i have to say but it's something that was very prevalent for his generation in relation to my generation which was that you know academia was everything you know he had three sons he has three sons and he wanted a lawyer a doctor and an engineer and that is pretty common in it's very nigerian very nigerian uh, 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 way of looking at things and uh, being the firstborn you know the eyes were very much on me but the thing i will say is my dad did bring us up to be our own person and to follow our passion, but he was also very clear about what he would like for us, and so I was well on our my way to being the lawyer. Um, but so you did give it a try. Well, you know what? Watching Blair Underwood in L.A. Law was like <laughs> my. I was like, <laughs> so so he's like a lawyer, but he's also acting the role. He's, he's a, a, Blair was like my savior. I was just I would just watch L.A. Law every day. Well, he's both, man. How could I? How could one be both? Um, and uh, and then in the meantime, I joined a youth theater just as a as a. To be honest, it was about a girl I really liked, and she invited me to the theater and I didn't realize it was a youth theater and then I gained this passion for acting and but it was never gonna be a real job and uh, and then I had this drama this drama teacher in high school who accosted me as I was about to go off and be a lawyer and said David I wouldn't say this to all of my students but I truly think you can make a profession of this I think you're good enough to do that and I said I don't even know what that means she helped me to apply to drama schools and and I ended up getting a scholarship and that was what won my dad over because drama school acting why do you want to go and be prancing about like a clown you know that was his thing in terms of acting but when i said to him but daddy i've got a scholarship ah you've got this got a hand 
scholar. I can tell everybody back home I have got a scholar. So that was that's what swung it. So I I ended up being at drama school for for three years on a scholarship, and then soon afterwards I got to play Henry the Sixth at the Royal Shakespeare Company, and my dad coming to see me play that role, and he happened to come on the night that Prince Charles came. Oh, that that had to be huge. Um, so it was a big deal for him. And so I, the, one of the most profound things and most beautiful things my dad's ever said to me, after the show, he came to the stage door and said, I cannot believe they allowed a black man to play the King of England, and it is my son. You know, and that was the moment that it turned around for him. He he really got on board with what I'd chosen to do as my passion and my as a, my working life. So he must have been really thrilled when you played Martin Luther King Jr. Oh yeah. yeah, that that was by by then we was just like my dad used to own own a uh, a cab firm, a taxi cab firm in the UK, and I would call him uh, while he was driving people around, and I could always tell when he had someone in the car because he was saying, "Excuse me, excuse me, I'm just talking to my son in LA." <laughs> I was like, Daddy, do you have someone in the car? I, I might do. I might do. So, are you working uh, with uh, Steven Spielberg? Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, Daddy, stop. You're so transparent right now. Um, yeah, he, he's definitely on board now. So, I assume then your dad has met Oprah? Have you interviewed He has. Her? Okay. He has. You know what? And he met her under the most extraordinary circumstances. So, this really... This really typifies who she is as a woman. She knew that my mom had had this brain aneurysm and it had actually happened just before we started shooting Selma. So the shoot was a very difficult one as a result and she had kind of really stepped in as a mother figure to me as we were shooting that film and even since then. Um, But uh, we finished shooting Selma and my mom was in the hospital still in a vegetative state. My dad was by her bedside every single day. And I was on another film and I get a call from Oprah. And she says, uh, David, I'm on my way to South Africa, but I decided to stop off in London and I'd love to go see your mom. And I thought, what? You you stopped off in... What, were you just were you just stopping in London? For, no, no, no. I stopped in London because I want to see your mom. So she stopped off on the way to South Africa, and she said, "How do I how do I get hold of your dad?" I was uh, I was so thrown by this, and I said, "Well, uh, give me a moment. Let me find out where he is." And he was on his way to the hospital, but he was stuck in traffic. And I told her where the hospital was, and she went to the hospital, and my dad was stuck in traffic for two hours. And Oprah, as in Oprah Winfrey, was sat in the lobby of the hospital for two hours. Just sat, and I, and, I, and I spoke to her on the phone. I said, are you at the hospital in the lobby? She said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm here. I've, I have my security, but he went to get a sandwich. So it means, oh, 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 another selfie. Okay, hey. Um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm uh, yeah, and I was like, you are you are on your own in the lobby with people taking selfies. I was just like, I'm calling my dad. I was like, Daddy, get there as soon as you can. Oprah is in the lobby and she's about to be. And he gets there. She waits the whole time. She goes up and spends all this time with my mom. My dad, you know, who's been doing this, you know, for... Oh. My dad, who's been doing this for for months on end to then just have her come along and hold his hand, spend half a day with him under these circumstances and then get back on her private plane and go off to South Africa to see her girls out there. I just, I just, even when I tell the story now, I feel like I'm telling you a, like a fairy tale, but I have the pictures <laughs> to prove it. You know, she actually, she actually did that for my mom and for me. That is easily one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard. Mm. Um, because a lot of times people you you look up to and idolize from afar, you're almost afraid to meet them because, or afraid to hear things about them because they may not live up to what you've built in your mind. And that's not to say people are perfect. They aren't. But um, hearing that about Oprah, I'm not surprised, but it is, you know, why she remains a hero of not just mine, but I mean, who, who, who is it, you know, doesn't hold Oprah, I guess, in, in that light. Mm. Um 
So your dad, uh, having, I'm sure, met Oprah through that particular way. And, and at that point, I mean, I don't know how close you guys were. Um, but, you know, for him, I'm sure that that probably meant the world to him, that she would take that kind of time to help him through this moment that had to be totally devastating. Well, my mom was such an admirer uh, of of Oprah's. Um, in fact, to the point whereby my mom could never really tell the difference between movies and reality. So when I did Red Tails, for instance, my character dies at the end of the movie and I... I went to the premiere with my mom and she saw the film and I said, mommy, what did you think? And she said, I don't like this movie. I said, what, what do you mean you die? You die? Why do I want to see you dying? Eh? Nobody wants to see their Spoiler son alert. die. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Nobody wants to see their, their son dying. I don't like this film. Okay. And that's literally all she had to say about it. Like, there's like, no like, there's no like, yeah. nah, but that bit, you know, she would come and see me in plays. Like, I remember one time, and I was engaged at the time and I had to, to kiss this girl on stage. My mom decides to sit on the front row. She's wearing full Nigerian attire, by the way. So every time the light hits her, she's like sparkling. And, uh, and then I'm kissing this girl. And he goes, ah, 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 put her down, put her down, put her down. I was like, are you, is this really, Tokumbo, Tokumbo. That's my, my Nigerian, Tokumbo, put her down. Eh? You're engaged. What a ridiculous promiscuity. I was like, okay. So she could never tell the difference. But when I went to her and told her about The Butler, um, uh, which is a film I did where Oprah was going to play my mom, I said, well, mom, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this film called The Butler. Oprah Winfrey's going to play my mom. She went, oh, this is perfect. This is perfect. I thought you were going to say, she was like, hold up, you already yeah, got a mom. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but no, 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 this is perfect. Oprah Winfrey, uh-huh, this is perfect. So, you know, she always had this huge admiration for Oprah. And she actually met Oprah, you know, a, a number of months before she, she, she became ill. So I know just how much she meant to her. So the fact that she would stop off, you know, uh, literally to go see my mom under these circumstances would have been something that just meant so much to my mom. So when you first, uh, when you were, you know, on The Butler and you first developed your relationship with Oprah, did you know right away that you guys would be, you know, really good friends? Because I, I know you, you work with actors all the time on mm-hmm. sets and uh, meet them through various social functions, I'm sure. But you don't always wind up being friends with them just because you're on the same set or you're mm. working with each other professionally. But was there kind of an instant you know, chemistry there. No, uh, because I, you know, she's Oprah. So <laughs> everyone on that set inevitably is trying to get their moment with Oprah. And I kind of went the other way. I just kind of thought, let me give her her space. I know we're playing mother and son, but I just, I constantly felt the need to not encroach upon her or be that person who's like all up in her face. And, and, it turns out she thought I was ignoring her. And so I remember there was one day that I, we, were, we were on set and I was walking past her and she goes, you, are you ignoring me? I said, no, I just, I just, I just want to give you your, your space. And he went, come here. And we sat down and we started a conversation. And that conversation bled into a moment where we were at a party in New Orleans. It was actually Lee, the, the house that Lee Daniels had rented at the time. And um, we got into this conversation um, about how difficult it is to be seen as the one. And she had had that for a long time and suffered under the weight of it. And she talked about how Sidney Poitier and Quincy Jones and Dr. Maya Angelou took her under their wing and really helped her break through some of the guilt that comes with that, some of the pressure that comes with that, some of the confusion that comes with that. Because it's not something you create. Sometimes people like it and perpetuate it. That wasn't the case for her. She was just a unicorn. And it was a challenging thing for her. And and to have those individuals who came alongside and were able to help her walk through it was huge for her. And we had barely done much together on set. And she said, I see in you what I saw in myself 30 years ago. I want to do for you what they did for me. What a compliment. 
And I and I just even as I say it now, I'm like, she said that. And she has not for one second since been anything but that for me. She just she just decided that's what she was gonna do and she hasn't stopped since. Uh, I've never met Oprah, but I'm just trying to figure out a way that if I ever met her, not to tell her my entire life story <laughs> and tell her. And also, I thought it'd be kind of awkward if I asked her to pat me on the back and tell me everything was going to be okay. <laughs> just trying to work through that. Once I get through that part, then yes. I was like, okay, I'm I'm fit to beat Oprah. Yeah, she gives the best hugs in the world. She just, 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 I've just seen this. Take the hug. Oh. Everything you just said there, you'll feel it in the hug. See, I don't even need to tell her anything. <laughs> um you, I mentioned this off air, so I'll bring it on air. I, but you, you all recently went on a vacation. It was you, Oprah, uh, Niecy Nash, Ava DuVernay. Who am I? Am I missing anybody? Yeah, my family. Was your family. Well, your family yeah, yeah. was there, of course, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so, what is it like to vacation with Oprah <laughs> and Ava and that group? What was that experience like? Well, you know, it, it's a very special thing because. My relationship with Ava, my relationship with Oprah was born out of um, the the reality of advocacy. What I mean by that, you know, through a miraculous set of circumstances, Ava DuVernay came into my life. I was sat on a plane next to a guy who happened to have just been asked to finance a script uh, or finance a movie called Middle of Nowhere. And... I didn't know this. This guy was watching his iPad and he was watching a TV show that I had done in the UK. And he looked to me, paused his screen and said, Are you, you're an actor. I'm watching you on my iPad right now. And then he asked me about, you know, if it's a good idea to, to finance movies. And I said, well, it depends on the movie. And he said, well, is this film middle of nowhere? I said, can I read it? I read it, blew my head off, phoned Ava, said, I've just read your script. Wow, I'd love to be in your movie. And that's how we came into each other's lives and I'd been trying to get this film Selma off the ground for at the time, I don't know, five, four or five years. And we kept on hemorrhaging directors and had this amazing experience with her on middle of nowhere and uh, really pushed for her to be the director of Selma. Uh, they, they came on board, the, the other producers and financiers, but we still couldn't get this thing made. And Oprah had told me when we were doing The Butler, and I had told her about my dream of playing Dr. King, that she would help me with anything I needed. And it just became clear that we needed someone like her to really give the financiers the kind of confidence to go, to give us the go-ahead. So Oprah, in a very real way, uh, was the reason why both myself and Ava got arguably our biggest break, you know, with, with Selma. And then she went on to do that for Ava again with uh, um, Queen Sugar. And a film I've literally just directed uh, now, The Waterman, she's a producer on. She continues to be an advocate for us. But it meant that Ava could go and be an advocate for those that cadre of female directors on Queen Sugar, it meant that I could see Storm Reid on the set of Wrinkle and Time and go, that's the girl who should play opposite me in Don't Let Go. And it's all been out of her example of advocacy and championing. And so when we get together, that's what it feels like. You know, she teaches us about business. Everyone's going to want to go <laughs> be on holiday with Oprah now. But, you know, she teaches us about business. She teaches us about, you know, how to be excellent. She teaches us about kindness. She teaches us about generosity. She teaches us about how to, you know, how the intention with which you go into something dictates what the thing itself is. And, you know, those are all things that, yes, it's fun and all that kind of stuff. But every time I'm around her, I'm around Ava, and we have these moments together, I leave energized because I just go back into the world knowing that anything and everything is possible. Well, uh, that vacation looked amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it, and that's really an inspiring story to hear because I, I do think that a lot of times, uh, especially in the industry that you're in, you, you don't hear about that kind of, not just interconnectedness, but like you said, that advocacy, mm -hmm. that you have people out here rooting for each other. Because I think just culturally, um, getting back to our discussion earlier in, in the podcast about, you know, British actors versus African American actors and, mm. and, and that whole nonsense is that we, you know, this is the trauma of oppression is that yep. we have to get out of the mindset of the there can only be one mm. or that 
or not understanding that when one of us succeed, we all succeed exactly. on on some kind of level. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that was just really inspiring for you to share that because I think there's somebody listening who probably needed to hear that and hear that that's possible. It didn't have to be Oprah. It could be something small that you do in your life for somebody else. That doing something for somebody else is not, never going to come at the expense of you, yeah. especially if it comes from a good place. Not going to happen. Yeah, and I think that culture or where you came from should not dictate who you reach out to. You know, I've seen Oprah get criticized for the fact that she has a leadership academy in South Africa. Which is ridiculous. Which is ridiculous. When you think about just how many young people she put through Morehouse at the same time as having that, but she doesn't, you know, she is not allowing herself to be painted in by her culture, her history, her own mindset. She's transcending that. You know, um, uh, people often assume that Ava was the one who cast me as as Dr. King. What they don't realize is that I fought tooth and nail for that story to be told for seven years. You know, I've heard people say, well, why, sh- why should he get to play it? They don't realize that there's a real chance that film would never have been made if I didn't advocate and push and struggle and fight for it to be made and then fight for someone like Ava to get to be the one to tell it. And then it was bolstered by someone like uh, um, Oprah, who doesn't see me as British, and so therefore I'm not going to support him in that role or whatever. She just, she just sees the truth, and the truth at the end of the day is the thing that transcends everything. And so that you're, 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 you're so right about you know your your reference to oppression and. The worst thing we can do is to do it to ourselves. It's one thing when it comes from without, but for it to now be eroding us from within, it's just it's just the opposite of, of, of what we should be doing and the way we should be looking. And, you know, what I see in this new generation is I really believe and hope they are not going to be of the same mindset. You know, I'm on set with a with a Storm Reid. I just directed a wonderful young actor called Lonnie Chavis, you know, as well. I don't see them under the same sort of um, ideology or mentality Uh, and I really hope that we and me I put this on me I don't really look to anyone else I put it on me to show them an example that hopefully obfuscates the tendency towards this kind of small-minded mindset you know they win we win we all win I see you with that scrabble word don't think I didn't know that I picked that I picked the vocabulary there so now, I mean, that was such a, um, a inspirational word that you just gave, all of that. So there's a part of me that feels really guilty about uh, introing the final segment of this podcast. Because <laughs> it's like, you all like, inspirational, king-like, gave us, you know, Prince Yellowwood just gave us the word. And now is the no, fun We should part. lighten it up. We should lighten it up. <laughs> well, now is the fun part where yes. I get to tell people uh, that the final segment which I know you've been waiting for uh, this entire podcast after your spirit is fed. (laughs) Now let's get to some ratchet shit. (laughs) Fuck it. I'm bothered is next. So by the time this particular podcast airs, Black Women's Equal Pay Day will have come and gone. It's August 22nd, for those who don't know. I think you guys can figure out where I'm going with this next. Fuck it, I'm bothered that we even have to have a Black Women's Equal Pay Day. Not because Black women don't deserve equal pay. Not because the lack of equal pay shouldn't be acknowledged. It's because we've been talking about equal pay for all women since Jesus was wearing Resurrections 11s. And yet in 2019, here we are having the same conversation about equal pay. We have to have a day to recognize the fact that we're treating black women like second class citizens. Just think about that. Black women have always been underpaid, by the way. Let me repeat, always been underpaid. Just imagine my voice inflection uh, had underlining and caps with it. Always been underpaid. 1967 is the first year that data on gender pay was available. 
1967, black women were paid 43 cents for every dollar a white man made. As of August 22nd, which is the official date of Black Women's Equal Pay Day, black women are making 61 cents for every dollar a white man makes. All right, a quick spidey calculation here. So in the 52 years since this data became available, let's add two, carry to one, black women have been able to close the gap by 18 cents. Miss Sophia didn't rock back and forth ever so gently at the family dinner table with a swollen eye for this. Now, the 61 cents number is just the national average. By state, that shit hits much different. Here's a fun fact you can repeat at parties. Black women in the boot, that would be Louisiana, make 47 cents, 47 damn cents for every dollar a white man makes. Now, I'm really about to fuck y'all up with this stat. Over the course of her career, a black woman stands to lose $946,000 because of the wage gap. So let me break it down even further so it can forever be broke. If a black woman and a white man start working at the same damn time, that black woman would have to work until she was 86 years old to make what the white guy would earn by the age of 60. The kicker is that black women are currently the most educated group in the country by race and gender. Black women represent the highest percentage of people enrolled in college. Yet we only make up 1.5% of all leadership roles. So when we discuss racism, understand that beyond the emotional trauma, there is an actual price that can be associated with racism. Racism is costing the average black woman almost a million dollars in salary over her lifetime. That is lost money that could change generations. It could reset family histories because we definitely know what generational wealth has done for white people. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Hold up. 